You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Very warm welcome to the RSA. My name is Georgina Chatfield. I'm Programme Manager for RSA Academies here at the RSA. It's my very great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's guest speaker, Professor Guy Claxton. Guy has held several distinguished academic posts and is the author of many highly acclaimed books on education, learning and creativity. His work has been hugely influential for us here at the RSA in our approach to creative learning and development and with his latest book, Intelligence in the Flesh, Why Your Mind Needs Your Body More Than You Think, he offers further valuable insights to inform our research and practice. The book provides a fascinating exploration of the field of embodied cognition which draws on the latest advances in neuroscience, psychology, to to counter the long-held view that true intelligence is only to be found in the conscious, rational world of the intellect. Instead, it offers a richer, more holistic account of intelligence that involves the whole body. This has profound implications across so many aspects of our lives and influences how we view and what we value in education, work and individual creative flourishing. Let's hear exactly why our minds need our bodies much more than we think. Please join me in welcoming Professor Guy Claxton. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Georgina. Thank you for your kind introduction. My training and my background is as a cognitive scientist, although some of you will know my day job for the last umpteen years Uh, has been much more to do with uh, education and learning and uh, educational reform. But every so often I get this cognitive scientific itch which needs a book to scratch it. And this this is the latest in a series of three books, really, uh, um, all stimulated by the same class of itch, which was the feeling that... Um, there is much more to intelligence than conscious, rational thought and deliberation. I wrote a book called Harebrained Tortoise Mind, which was one of the first books to make generally available um, uh, information on what's come to be called the cognitive unconscious and the importance of unconscious processing in cognition, and then followed that with another book called The Wayward Mind, which was an attempt to trace the history of notions of the unconscious Uh, one of which throughout um, certainly Western history has uh, linked intelligence very much to the body. So uh, not being able to do justice to that topic in the second book, uh, it needed another book. Complex bodies have a perennial problem. The problem is, what's the best thing to do next? Solving this problem involves resolving three complex sets of considerations. The first is a set of concerns. Bodies always have a fluctuating set of concerns, needs, desires, interests, and so on. Even those which are more conditioned or more social have their roots, derive their energy, derive their passion from connections with embodied values. These sets of concerns are rooted throughout the body, but largely in the major organs and the tissues of the body. 
I'll come back and say more about that as we go on. The second set of considerations is uh, our capabilities. Things that the body can do about its concerns. And we're born, again, with a rather limited set of those, homeostatic and autonomic responses, but very rapidly start to build up an enormous efflorescence, an enormous repertoire of skilled actions which require the concerted functioning of the whole body. Uh, to be effective, these actions in the service of the concerns need to mesh well, mesh appropriately with what is being afforded by your environment, by your circumstances. So there is another set of opportunities, or the technical word is affordances, which are revealed to us or constructed for us by our special senses. And the best thing to do next emerges as a kind of real-time optimal solution to resolving and integrating these three different uh, sets of considerations. And this is a really complex task. The more complex the body and the more experienced the body, the more tuned the body has become by its experiences, the more its set of concerns proliferate, the more its set of capabilities proliferate, the sophistication and accuracy of the affordances which the senses can reveal proliferate. So this is no mean task. It's probably the core task that any organism with a complex body has. Now, out of the thousands of things that are jockeying for position, that are competing for attention, things that are going on in the body, <clears throat> some have to be selected, particularly those that require whole body actions. Lots of these little mini-processes, particularly homeostatic or autonomic processes, can carry on quite automatically side by side. They don't interfere with each other much. But when the whole body is required to act, when you need a meal, when you're too hot and you want to take your jacket off, when uh, sex is in the air, whatever, then the body is, must act in concert. Uh, and creating that concertedness uh, requires all these different interest groups, so to speak, in the body, to talk to each other. They have to uh, get together and negotiate and compromise and prioritize and sequence so that that acting in concert can happen. And they hold those conversations, they communicate in a variety of different ways, <clears throat> they communicate mechanically. When one bit of your body moves, the overall uh, architecture of your body shifts so that one movement is communicated to other areas of the body through the mechanical connections of the body. Uh, it happens chemically, obviously, through the immune system and through the endocrine system. And it happens electrically. Uh, through the nervous system. It's important to bear in mind that although the topic that I'm drawing on is generally referred to as neuroscience, it is equally as much mechanoscience and chemoscience as it is neuroscience. 
and that sometimes gets neglected. Sometimes these different interest groups, different constituencies, talk to each other directly. They have, so to speak, they can dial room to room within the body without going through the central switchboard. The heart talks directly to the gut. The heart has its own little brain which communicates with the brain, with the ganglia of neurochemical systems that operate within the gut. The immune system talks directly, of course, because it floats around the body. Francisco Varela used to refer to the immune system as bits of brain floating around the body. Um, those systems talk directly to the muscles. They talk directly to the skin and so on. So there's lots of lateral conversations going on in the body, but they seem not to be sufficient in order to smooth out and integrate the many different competing claims on our concertedness that need to be integrated if we're to function intelligently. So they need, as well as the room-to-room conversations, they need to have a central meeting place, a central conclave, a moot, a common room, where these different uh, voices, these different claims, these different sources of information about what is possible, what is desirable, what is capable, can come together and thrash out their differences. And that place, obviously, is the brain. The brain is the common room where streams of information are constantly looping in and out. Fresh dispatches are being received from the outposts of the somatic empire the whole time and outflows of different alerts and activations are being created as a result of the complex conversations and negotiations which are going on uh, in the central areas of the brain. This offers us a picture of the brain which is very different from the conventional view of the brain as the command centre of the body, as somehow as the originator, the instigator, the fat controller of the body, who sits in the brightly lit chamber or creates, constructs, depending on your theory, the brightly constructed chamber of consciousness, summing up and uh, intelligently integrating and deciding and remembering and so on, and then issuing orders to the rest of the body. The idea of the brain as the chat room rather than the command centre of the body gives us a very different view of where intelligence resides. The idea that intelligence inheres in the brain seems to be a leftover of a kind of neo-Cartesian view. The Cartesian view, intelligence inhered only in the abstract world of conscious reason, and everything else was done. There is nothing in the mind that is of the body, there is nothing in the body that is of the mind, said Descartes. But when, in the 19th and 20th centuries, we became dissatisfied with that strong dualism and started looking, as it were, for the natural home of the mind, the most obvious place to put it was from the neck up, 
which allowed us to retain that kind of apartheid of intelligence. From the neck up, we were smart. But from the neck down, we remained dumb and menial and servant-like, so to speak. So the view that I've just sketched very, uh, very crudely, given the time that's available, gives us a different view, gives us a view of the entire body as the organ of intelligence, rather than the body as being merely the effectors and informants of a form of intelligence which resides in a central HQ. Of course, like any meeting, complex meeting, juggling different interests, the meeting benefits from having uh, something or some what that acts as a moderator or a facilitator of those discussions, the lateral areas particularly of the prefrontal cortex. But we can't relocate into those areas of the brain, although they're called the central executive or executive function, that's very different. The notion of the moderator or the facilitator is very different from the chief executive, who is the person, again, who decides and makes all the decisions. The discussion that's going on between these different uh, factions and factors within the body can be moderated in terms of uh, assessments about the riskiness of the outcome or the urgency of the action. So the nature of the discussion can be uh, expanded or lengthened to be broader, to explore uh, a wider set, if time allows, to make sure that all the voices are being properly heard so that you get the best decision, so that the decision is not made out of habit, for example, out of a habit of decisiveness which uh, forecloses on further exploration of other sources of information that might be available or wider ripples of consequence that it might be worth bearing in mind. So the moderator can slow the conversation down and can activate wider ripples of exploring predicted consequences born of experience to weigh in the balance and also can integrate, can allow space and opportunity when time allows to integrate less urgent but perhaps more important promptings of concern from the viscera instead of responding to the merely urgent where, where there is time, the moderator can allow the discussion to include, to take account of wider uh, considerations. So the executive function functions like a neutral chair, so to speak, of the discussion rather than a dictator of the discussion. So on that very sketchy picture, we begin to see that intelligence is as much somatic as it is cognitive. Intelligence itself seems to rely in the optimal resolution of all these factors, a, a resolution which, at its best, emerges from a well-orchestrated integration of all these different sources of information. So it should be no surprise on this view that cognition itself, our higher mental processes, are deeply and continually influenced by the body, modulated, moderated, 
from very obvious commonsensical illustrations. We all find it harder to think clearly when we have a cold or when we're tired. Um, through to rather more esoteric but anecdotal versions of that. One of my favorites is uh, an article I read quite some time ago in which Andrew Motion, who was then Poet Laureate, was describing his working process. And uh, one of the things he described, which I always thought was rather cute, was the fact that on a poetry writing day, he would sometimes, although he was feeling perfectly well, he would sometimes take a Beecham's powder in the morning in order to, as it were, and apparently the trick worked, in order to try and trick his body into a slower, more inward and more melancholic state, which you might associate with having a cold. And out of that, he, he had discovered through experience uh, his body-brain-mind system would produce better quality poetry, or at least poetry that he found more satisfying. But, as many of you will know, there are a lot more of more technical, experimentally-based demonstrations of this tight interwovenness or interconnectedness. Did you know that the normal unselfconscious depth of your breathing is correlated with your spatial IQ, for example? That's a surprising fact, isn't it? Did you know that different styles of dance, if you have people dance in different styles and then give them a variety of cognitive tests of memory or information processing or creativity, their approach, their intellectual approach, their cognitive approach differs depending upon whether they've been practicing a highly formalized and constrained type of dance or whether they've been practicing a more creative or more improvisational type of dance. Did you know that your facial expression influences quite dramatically influences your social intelligence. If you're forced to, again, this is an experiment that many of you will know, if you're forced to adopt a certain expression with your mouth by holding a pen either between your lips, like that, or between your teeth, like that, you become differentially good at detecting the emotion in the other people's facial expressions. If you hold the pen like this, your mouth make, is, is almost automatically is inclined to make a sadder expression, a sort of moo like that, and you become better in an entirely cognitive perceptual task at discriminating sad rather than happy faces, whereas if you're holding the pen like this, you tend to naturally smile and you get the reverse effect. You actually become better at uh, being able to tell mild expressions that signify happiness rather than sadness. Did you know that, well, this is not very surprising, that when you're just asked to read sentences, not to do anything with them, but just to read them, a sentence like, John grasped the hammer, bits of the bit of your brain which is to do with clenching the fist lights up. Automatically, it can't help itself. Even though there is no real hammer and you're not being required to do anything, but it's slightly more interesting to know that exactly the same bit of your, light, your brain lights up to almost the same extent if the sentence you're having to appraise is John grasped the argument. Even in abstract forms of language comprehension, uh, it looks as if the sensory motor brain keeps getting in on the act. 
and people are now arguing that there are no other areas of the brain, as it were, that all our higher mental processing is grounded, actually or potentially, in what's going on at the sensory motor level. Perception is influenced. Even quite neutral forms of perception are, are influenced. If you're tired, a hill actually physically, perceptually looks steeper than if you're relaxed and energetic. And we know from a whole series of experiments that your skin often catches on quicker in tricky situations than your mind does. Your skin gives evidence of being able to understand cumulatively what's going on in a complex series of events, whereas your mind, as it were, arrives rather late, puffing and panting and behind the action. Uh, one can tell by, by measuring the electrical conductivity of the skin that you're beginning to be able to make subtle discriminations, for example, which your mind is still a long way away from being able to notice, let alone articulate or explain. These are the famous experiments of Antonio Damasio in the so-called Iowa gambling task, which mimic the kind of financial decision-making the picking up of subtle trends that a stockbroker becomes expert at, or at least he or she would have us believe that he's become expert at it. The result of Damasio's studies show very clearly that past experiences always leave a kind of visceral trace of a, a value judgment of good or bad, delighted or disappointed, profit or loss, and that when we face a new situation that is somewhat resonant with or similar to that accumulated history, we make decisions which are based partly on the reactivation of these what he calls somatic markers, these visceral residues, these subtle resonances of value that are attached uh, to our memories. Um, so these somatic markers guide decision-making in the present. Now, of course, they can be misleading. We know that gut feelings can mislead us. So I'm not making a, a one-sided argument here. Um, but without them, according to Damasio's, particularly his neurological studies, but without these visceral markers, these somatic indicators, we're lost. You may understand the situation and people with certain kinds of brain damage get to the point where they can articulate what's going on in these complex situations just as well as you and I, but they never get to the point where that understanding seems to gain traction over their action. They continue to behave as if they didn't understand the situation whilst being able to uh, explain to you uh, what's going on in the situation. This is very odd. Uh, conversely, people who are more sensitive to, their, to these bodily promptings do better in these kinds of tasks. For example, if you measure how good someone is at being able to monitor their heartbeat without feeling their pulse, just being sensitive to their own heartbeat, they do better in these uh, decision-making tasks uh, that uh, Damasio has explored very in, in great detail. So for some people, their somatic reactions have become disconnected, so to speak, from the conversation in the common room. They've lost touch with each other. That, and that disconnection uh, creates a serious 
diminution of practical real-world intelligence. Without that connectivity, without what Damasio now refers to as the somatic or the visceral rudder to guide us, we behave less intelligently in the world. It's, those somatic resonances may still be there, but it's as if, so to speak, their voices can no longer be heard at high table. They're not present in the, in the conversation. And that lack uh, reflects in the, the quality of the choices and the decisions that people are making. So without the visceral and the somatic rudder, intellect and intelligence seem capable of shearing apart We can become clever but inept. Actions can become unguided by our deeper values and concerns to our own detriment and to the detriment of the situations and the contexts in which we find ourselves. It's as if what we're discovering is almost like a second form of stupidity. The first form of stupidity is when the common room, the conclave, doesn't function well and the discussion can be hijacked by single-issue fanatics and and extremists within the body, so to speak. In other words, you act impulsively. You act without uh, thorough integration of the different different factors. So to speak, we we become prone to forms of extremism or jihadism. No complexity, no moderation is allowed. Different aspects of us can grab the steering wheel. That is what you might call the first form of stupidity. But the second form of stupidity is when this separation occurs and our intelligence becomes eviscerated, becomes desomatized, becomes, you might say, heartless in a way. Intellect becomes free-floating, can become unfounded, lacking connection with common sense and perhaps even with basic humanity. Education can and does contribute quite significantly to this evisceration of the mind. Feelings in schools become largely matters of inconvenience. They're dealt with only when they seem to be getting in the way of cognitive performance. Anger management becomes something that is of relevance but only when things are not going smoothly in your history lesson. Or feelings become intellectualized, become, so to speak, upgraded, but I would say downgraded, by being treated only through discussion and through worksheets, not through the living reality of them in the classroom. The fine practical intelligence of the craftsman or the craftswoman The plumber, the carer, the hairdresser, the electrician, the cook gets demeaned regularly, routinely in these desomatizing institutions that we call schools. Not only demeaned, or, but as I say, sometimes worse, intellectualized into abstract concepts. It's like if you're doing, uh, I forget what it's called these days, it used to be called cookery, didn't it? Then it was called domestic science, and now it's called I don't know what. But it's like you spend an awful lot of time discussing abstract notions like uh, resistant materials or product design or packaging or something like that, and much less time. Things that can be dealt with in the context of an institution that knows only how to talk about things, not to cultivate sensibilities so much. 
the most abstract subjects, particularly mathematics, is given more weight, becomes the cock of the roost. And so people who do well in these desomatized subjects, people who like to and who are good at calculating and analyzing, arguing and debating, tend to float to the top of our educational institutions and float on into certain highly influential careers, particularly politics, journalism, copywriting, and the law. Intellects for hire, you might say, where the ability to spin an argument to any end becomes your saleable commodity, rather than to act out of principle or out of some deeper, more embodied kind of concern. Our, institu our institutions themselves, parliament, universities, hospitals, medical schools, also become, tend to become eviscerated, disdainful of intuition, of feeling, of hesitation, of judgment born of experience, particularly in these litigious days. You can't rely on 30 years of clinical experience to decide when your home birth, when you really might need an ambulance, or when it's probably fine to be able to continue for fear of you have to have a computer printout to justify your judgment. That has greater weight. But interoceptive sensibility can be rehabilitated. That sensitivity to our bodies, not through manic forms of exercise and training, but through gentler forms of the rehabilitation of that interoceptive awareness, of that inclusive sensibility to what's going on inside ourselves. We know that meditation and Tai Chi and yoga have significant effects, not just on health and happiness, but actually on intelligence, on cognitive performance. You think better as a result of experience with these disciplines. And many of the arts thank goodness, insist on the validity of the visceral response. Aesthetics are essentially somatic in their, uh, in their responses. We don't understand, we are touched, we are moved, we well up. We use different kinds of words to describe the experience of that kind of intelligence. We don't analyse, it's like getting a joke. You know, Getting a joke is a somatic experience, isn't it? not something that is merely a matter of cognitive appreciation. So I think I'll just finish there with the thought that one of that it may be why it's so important that the long and clumsy name of the RSA has got shrunk to the Royal Society of the Arts. Uh, the arts should remain prominent in reminding us of the validity of these other forms of intelligence and of the risks we run when we value only the conscious and the rational. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Guy, for that very uh, wide-ranging and um, very insightful um, talk. Um, I've got two questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, first of all, I wanted to pick up on your um, reference to education, yeah. and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how, if we think about the body and the mind more holistically, this might have an impact on how we teach and how, how students learn, what that might look like. I think that's going to be my next book. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I've started to I've I've started to think about it. There's a little bit, but only a little bit in this book. Um, but I'm trying to get together a, a group of people at um, King's College London, where I now have a desk, uh, to help me think about that. And I think there are some deep... And other people are beginning to think about it. One of Damasio's collaborators, a woman called Mary Helen Imordino Yang, which is a great name, uh, is, is beginning to write about this as well. I mean, obviously, it seems to me, at, a, at, a, at an entry level, we need to reappraise this disabling hierarchy of esteem that runs our curriculum. Mm. We really need to rethink that and to, re, to re-esteem uh, other forms of intelligence. I don't think we'll make any progress with this kind of long-standing concern about the lack of esteem for the vocational subjects. I don't think we'll make any progress with that unless we, uh, unless we can encourage, it's one of the reasons for writing the book, unless we can get people to see that this lack of esteem is a superficial reflection of this deeper misunderstanding about the nature of intelligence. Mm -hmm. We esteem intelligence, but by skewing our definition of intelligence only towards the abstract and the platonic and the rational, we necessarily, therefore, disesteem things that don't have those things. So I think getting this into education would be very important from the point of view of shifting that balance around. But simply talking about these things, simply introducing other practices. The body gets dealt with on the sports field, Mm -hmm. somewhat in dance, Mm -hmm. but you would be looked at askance in some schools. Mindfulness is now becoming very popular. Mm. And I think one of the reasons why that is is a good wave, a good wave of interest in schools is not just because mindfulness makes you calmer and more centred or more focused, but because it is the practices of mindfulness do actually train you to return to the body. I think there is something essential about the fact that the traditional practices of mindfulness involve attention not on a candle or not on a mantra, but on the basic, pure present, simple, here-and-now experiences of the body. Mm. And I would love to see that permeating education more. But when I was um, reading the book, I kept thinking about the adage, um, healthy body, a healthy mind. Mm. Um, And picking up what you were saying at the end there about the relationship between Tai Chi and yoga and the the actual intellectual benefits that that has, as well as health benefits. And Mm. I, I wondered whether perhaps what you're also trying to do is place a greater emphasis on the body and... Um, how we look after our bodies, not just from a kind of public health campaign perspective, but from an appreciation of actually yeah, how yeah. it might have yes. an impact on our intellect and our yes. cognitive skills. Yeah, I mean, uh, people are very interested in their, in their bodies. You know, I mean, they're hugely important to us, but it tends to be through what? Through the way we dress, through our hairstyle, through cosmetics, through cosmetic surgery, through piercings and tattoos, through sporting prowess... They tend to be the kind of, through dance, the kind of major ways in which we attend to or celebrate the body. And none of them perhaps gets to this quieter, more, more perceptive, more um, intricate kind of awareness. You know, you can become a high-achieving athlete, but your bodily awareness may not be very well cultivated at all, except in, you know, feeling the build-up of lactate in your mm. biceps or yeah, something like that. So I think there's, 
I think there's a lot, and I think there's more to be discovered about diet mm. and about a whole lot of different kinds of practices. I mean, actually, I mean, the next book might be, it might be about education, but it also, I mean, it leaves me with a big question, which is, I'm sure many people in the audience are already thinking this, about more traditional forms of ways of knowing or understanding, traditional mm. forms of medicine, for example, more holistic or complementary forms of medicine, Ayurveda or other forms of indigenous medical practice, which I suspect are a, uh, a, an entanglement of uh, mythology and old wives' tales and deep truth. The trouble is we don't know which bits are which. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and, I, and I think it would be very useful for us to, to allow, if this kind of science allows us to take these sorts of considerations more seriously as rational, educated grown-ups, then I think that might open up uh, perhaps a more fruitful uh, kind of research mm -hmm. into what we could learn from... These, from some of these other disciplines and what is clearly rubbish. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, at, the, at this juncture, let's open it out to the, uh, to the audience. There's a gentleman in the, the front here. Professor, thank you very much. Uh, an, an enlightening uh, talk. Uh, I'm Henry Ford. I actually run the RSA Mindfulness Network here, oh. uh, so I'm gratified <laughs> to hear that. Very uh, good. Um, I didn't intentionally give you a puff, but no, you're, no, you're, well, you're very welcome to it. The RSA is an enlightenment organization, actually. And uh, we, we, um, I, uh, the question I have is that uh, this mind and, and heart connection has been uh, around for millennia. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the Buddha and others have, have, have had this, known this connection. Uh, it gives you a better experience in life. Where do we go wrong, and where did we, you know, come to reside in our prefrontal cortex rather than in in, in our entire uh, body sure. of feelings? Mm -hmm. Sure. Lovely. And uh, we'll take two at a time. Oh, we got to yeah, yeah. Yep. Take two at a time. Sure. So uh, you stole a little bit of my thunder there, but okay. I guess the, the the sense if I watch um, Peter Sellers play Clouseau, he's meditating. He has his assistant attack him. So this whole sense that this Not is brand now, new. Cato. Yeah. So, so the, the sense that this is brand new yeah. information, um, it's not. Sure. But I guess the sense that musical chairs in the West yeah. has trumped some of this stuff that they've known in Eastern philosophy for a yes. while, blind will and all that. And I guess the sense of if you boil down to what I understand from my experience with um, the passing of meditation is the fact that I have connection with my body allows me to regulate my emotions. It gives me access to my unconscious as far as a decision tool. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess that, that sense of how is this helpful when uh, half of society isn't um, operating that way and we have young people that need to get on the career ladder and that type of thing for a machine that they're not responsible for. Great. Thank you. Yes, a lot bundled yes. up in there. Uh, no, 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 not, no, not at all. I won't, I won't be able to respond to, to all of it. Um, I start the book with a little bit of a discussion of the kind of historical background, and it's not particularly novel, but it needed rehearsing in the book. I mean, you go back to the classical Greeks, 
you go back to the search for something which is not which is incorruptible the sense that the body is unsatisfactory because it corrupts it becomes ill it dies go back to the buddha or to plato or whoever and therefore there is a search for something which is other than which is higher than or more ethereal or more trustworthy or less corruptible so begins the search for something or other which survives physical death the soul the spirit uh something of that kind which i th- which i i would see now as a perfectly understandable and pragmatically useful source not for truth but for comfort that those notions are comforting and then they become attached to ideas of better or worse so for example the idea of 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 more abstract is better more ethereal is better because less corruptible more heavenly is better uh so you get a sense of kind of up is good and down is bad so the body begins to be treated as the downward and the lowly and the spirit or the abstract reason mind and soul to to some extent begin to play the same kind of functions you know they offer a comforting sense of something uncontaminated or unadulterated by experience and unfortunately comforting though that is it is itself a corrupt notion it's a corrupt and misleading or misguiding notion so ultimately you know it's a it's a pragmatic matter as to whether it's untruth is 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 outweighed by its uh, value as a comforter those kinds of things but but you begin to get that pejorative split that's a short answer to a long a long question um Yes, I mean I think a lot of my work has been about trying to give a scientific story that underpins what a lot of people have known for a long time. The trouble is that what a lot of people have known for a long time also co- co- contains a lot of rubbish. A lot of something that is, you know, mythological and muddled up you know do- dogma so so when i was for example in the wayward mind when i was exploring the history of ideas of the unconscious the the way i told the story was in terms of three strands the uh, that the, the unconscious is, is again it's a comforting notion which gives the semblance of explaining something that seems odd or wayward or disconcerting about our experience or our behavior self destructive or being possessed or act or inspired or whatever it might be like how come that doesn't fit with my normal sense of myself or my mind so one 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 strand is it's something outside me that 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 get that gained control of me the gods did it the demons did it the spirits took me over the second is that there's some murky depth inside myself the the freudian type of unconscious and the third strand of story and and both of those stories are also they're just their stories you know and and they contain fictitious entities and i now see the unconscious as a fictitious entity whose days may be numbered when we understand the intricacies of the body more accurately so i I've, i've sort of am putting my money on the third story you know which started out with the humors i behaved badly because i had an excess of bile or my black phlegm was overwhelming me that day you know that was the beginning of a sort of physical physicalizing 
explanation. But so I think, you know, trying to disentangle what, you know, what our grandmothers knew already from, or what indigenous cultures knew already, from what, what, from their own contaminants is a job that science can help us do. It's not like we're just reinventing the wheel. I think we are, I would like to think this, well, I would, wouldn't I? But <laughs> that we are making some progress here. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. cleaning it up. Yeah, yeah, thank Lovely. you. Lovely. Um, gentleman in the back row... Um, hello. If I am climbing a cliff face and ropes and pitons and things and I'm struggling to get up, then I can well see how the, the feedback from the body into the mind will influence what I'm doing. On the other Obviously. hand, if I'm standing down at the bottom looking at the cliff face, um, thinking about possibly climbing it, how much does the body feed into that? And then going into an abstract situation, um, if, for example, I'm thinking about um, how much, uh, whether I should vote to stay or leave as far as Brexit's concerned, how much does the body feed into that, or is that just mind? Um, I don't know, yeah. Mark Bisson, uh, coach and uh, mentor. I was, I was really stu- uh, struck, uh, Guy, by... Uh, Struck or stuck? Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about what you said about being desomatized and heartless and that yeah. we can become clever but inept. In, in my practice, I've noticed in the last 20 years, employers looking for a more balanced employee um, where they're focusing as well as on IQ but on EQ. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how this is feeding through into the education system that if employers are looking for a more, sure. more balanced person... Uh, how's that impacting on education policy and strategy? Yeah, thank you. Yes, obviously, when you're in a, you know, your body is in a physically uh, endangered or stressed situation, body and mind are working together. That's not interesting or surprising. What is more interesting is, for example, the way in which I draw in the book uh, on a book by uh, George Lakoff and Raphael Nunes called Where Mathematics Comes From, which, it, which argues, I think up to a point, I've spoken to mathematicians about this, they would say they go a bit too far, but quite a long way, they argue that our understandings of mathematics and our mathematical reasonings, they too are grounded in physical experience and, as it were, physical metaphors. Take, take, take a very simple example. So it's not that it's that the, the sensory motor reality underpins your thinking, not that your body may necessarily actively be doing something at that moment. Let me, let me give you an example. If you think of adding when you're a child as, uh, as adding something else to a pile to create a bigger pile then it's quite easy to see how you can add three things to a pile of four things and end up with a pile of seven things. But if you have that, as it were, that physical metaphor, you have trouble with when you're asked to take four away from three because that physical metaphor doesn't give you any understanding of what could be less than a pile. You can't have less than no pile. But if your understanding is based like standing at a particular point and adding is like walking north from that point. You can walk north three paces and another four paces and you've walked 
seven paces north, but you can walk three paces north and four paces south and perfectly well understand that you're a mile south from where you started off, and that's what a negative number is. And children who don't know that, they've had, that they have these underlying physical metaphors either find negative numbers easy or difficult. And they make the same kind of argument about differential calculus. The trouble that 16, 15 and 16-year-olds have grasping differential calculus is also a reflection of a kind of buried but underlying uh, sense of, of physical metaphors. But also, I think, you know, when you're standing at the bottom of the cliff contemplating, your body is highly active, you know. It's different if you're just looking at a picture of the cliff. If you're actually standing there reviewing and reflecting, your reflections and your anticipations and your anticipatory decision-making will, so the evidence seems to suggest, also be drawing on, whether you're aware of it or not, on these kind of visceral intimations that are going on in your own body, these echoes of your previous experience. In education, I think you're right. I mean, I think this does connect with a lot of the work that I do in education at the moment, which is exactly about the, the, the kind of thing that you are arguing. You know, how do you teach maths or history or whatever in a way that also at the same time, systematically builds the kinds of qualities of character that Nicky Morgan has suddenly discovered an interest in, <laughs> that, helps, that helps young people become disposed to be more resilient, persistent, imaginative, inquisitive, better collaborators, better able to reflect. And even that level, even without involving the body too much, that's, it's perfectly doable... You can teach maths plus imagination, maths plus experimentation, history plus what we would call in my system stretching your empathy muscles, learning to be more empathic. In fact, history is, an, is, is wasted if it's not used as an exercise machine for developing empathy, isn't it? It's like it's a prime subject for stretching your ability to put yourself in the heart, the mind, the situation, the predicament of people who lived in very different times and places from yourself. That's, that's one of the main benefits that history should be having. And likewise, in terms of all the other things that employers say they want, more imaginative, independent, entrepreneurial kinds of thinking. It's just that our education system has not only become eviscerated, but so completely to allergic to anything that smacks of real life or the body. It's like it's retreated into this world of supreme dullness that no parent could object to. You know, it's hard to get, it's hard to get cross about the fact that your child is being taught to add fractions. You know, whereas if you're being talking about, you know, the bombings in Brussels or jihadism or whatever it might be, you know, someone might get upset. So we'd better not talk so much about that. So unfortunately, I think education has become, you know, that's why it's, it, it may be in its death throes, schools as we, schools as we know them, because they've, they've systematically trodden on their own oxygen supplies, I think. That's a good metaphor, that is isn't it? That's a good it? metaphor. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we've got time for two haven't, more. I haven't thought There's of that one before. Gentleman in the front. And just looking to the lady, lady in the back there, in the middle, on the very back row. Thank you yeah. very much indeed. I agree with so much of what you say. And at a time when we've, our default position in our place of work tends to be facing a, sitting facing a screen. 
um, I feel there's also a job to be done there as well, as we are doing. But we've been, yes. we've been yeah. looping with you as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm fascinated by what you were saying about feelings in schools being inconvenient. Mm. Um, my business is um, theatre and drama. Uh -huh. And it's interesting that you, when you cite the arts, you talk about dance. Um, but you didn't mention drama, which... I should have. Slip of the well, maybe, maybe it was a slip, slip of, the of the gut, gut I think I'm it's afraid. an interesting <laughs> sli yeah, slip of the gut. I think it's an interesting <laughs> slip of the gut because I feel that, for my, myself, drama has been sort of, if you like, um, captured by the canon, by the written word, therefore yeah. possibly the intellect yeah. and the imitation, the game yeah. of imitation, as opposed to storytelling and self-expressed self storytelling, yeah. and which can um, you know, do a similar thing to what you were doing with the, with the pen. Mm -hmm. but using another yeah. person. And yeah. I'm interested in your comments on that. Yes. Lovely. Uh, yeah. And before you do... Yeah, sorry. Uh, professor, um, you spoke of somatic markers yeah. and uh, from life experience, and I was just wondering if the, you see any connection uh, between vo voices lost at high table from the body, as yeah. you say, yeah. and voices which become uh, auditory hallucinations in psychosis. Ah, that's a very interesting question, which I have not thought about, but I, I'm, I might have something to say about it when I've dealt with the first question, or I might not. Well, let's, let's, yeah. let's, let, let's see if anything wells up. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely, I should have mentioned drama. In my own defence, I should say that I should have spent this morning from 10 o'clock till 12 o'clock, had I been, not been fretting about preparing this lecture observing a third-year uh, rehearsal at RADA um, with a woman called Lucy Skilbeck, who's director of acting there, because I've become, I'm, I'm so interested in the, in the somatic, the physical nature of learning. So uh, I'm going to, I will get around to it, but I just uh, mismanaged my time, so I had to cancel that this morning, I'm afraid, but I would have been there. Uh, the connection between the voices at high table and auditory hallucinations. It's a, it's a, it's a, nice, it's a nice question, uh, but there's nothing about it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this would be book seven. Yeah, book seven. Book seven in a rapidly expanding trilogy. <laughs> this is what happens when you come to the RSA. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'll, I, I, seriously, I will, I will go away and ponder on that one. Thank you for the question. Lovely. We've got time for one quite a quick question then. Um, Mary Wood, uh, fellow. Um, my question is about what interrupts the creative process proceeding, and you've talked about in education and it being becoming so boring, but how does trauma also trauma. impact? Trauma, yes. Yeah and trauma, and perhaps attachment issues, imperfect attachment. I, that's another very interesting question, which I can speculate a little bit about. I had been reading uh, a book that I found very interesting, which I write a little bit about in this book, which is about... Uh, it's a book by... I forget the man's name now, but he's someone who specialises... He's a psychotherapist who specialises in working with, with boarding school recoverers. Um, and he has very interesting things to say about the, the way in which that experience is often dealt with through a kind of involuntary desomatization of oneself, a kind of 
almost deliberate, uh, not amputation, but a... Dissociation. Yeah, yeah, a a dissociation. I myself was sent to uh, prep school when I was eight. Um, And I spent a couple of years, uh, some some years ago now, um, working with a therapist because I was puzzled about why I couldn't remember being more upset by this by this experience it was a kind of it was a, it was a real puzzle that had kind of had got got into me it wasn't that i was n- not feeling i was i wasn't functioning but it was just i was and i you know I'm, the the story that i began to unearth was one of of just of simply that of having kind of learnt actually from an earlier age growing up with a particular kind of mother that certain kinds of physical actions physical outcries emotional responses were dangerous in the context of that that family and so somehow or other the body learns a trick doesn't it the, the, the body learns to dissociate or to dampen to create blind spots in its own experience of itself and also I think to cope with the suppression of feeling is often coped with through the development of a kind of background chronic muscular tension, as in the stiff upper lip or you know, the, the, the angularity of the stressed face is a kind of involuntary clenching of muscles which are designed to, to try and control or minimise the expression of emotion judged to be shameful or inappropriate or unwelcome. So I think, and I'm interested in this, I think there's a lot to be said about the role, particularly the role of the body in recovery from trauma and in therapy more generally. A couple of days ago I had lunch with someone who's a sort of senior trainer in a form of body work called Feldenkrais. I don't know if any of you in the room have come across that. Um, And he's become a friend of mine and we have very interesting conversations about the the intricacies of the process if any of you know Feldenkrais or Alexander technique or so on like the real the fascinating subtleties of trying to allow attention and awareness to seep back into parts of the body which it has somehow become blocked from Um, so yes I think that's (laughs) extremely interesting I don't know if I have anything uh, really, really um, to add to the literature that exists, but I think it ties in very well with the story that I'm trying to tell. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, um, Guy, for what's been an absolutely fascinating introduction to me, certainly into this this whole field. So, and thank you all very much for coming for your questions. Um, the book Intelligence in the Flesh will be available for sale in the auditorium, and I'm sure that Guy will be happy to sign a copy for you. So, please join me in thanking today's very special speaker, Professor Guy Capson. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.